Welcome back to Beyond the Dispensary. This episode, I speak with Amy Leck, who is an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist working in the Top End Health Service in Darwin. We covered a really interesting range of topics, including what it's like to work with therapeutic guidelines, what we mean by antimicrobial stewardship, why Amy chose infectious diseases, why she's now gone on to do a PhD, and what it's like to practice in areas of cultural diversity. Amy shared some fantastic advice, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing about her experiences. So let's get into it. Amy, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. How's things going on in uh, Darwin early in the morning on a, on a Sunday? Yeah, things in Darwin are great. We're just coming to the end of the wet season. So it's humid until it rains and then it's glorious. And then the second it stops raining, it's humid again. Uh, but it's quite fun, actually. You just never know when you're about to get saturated. Yeah, that sounds about right. How's the, how's the weekend been? What have you been up to? The weekend's been good. Uh, what have I been up to? Oh, I went to this fantastic uh, Tiwi Strong Women's Choir on Sunday night, which was a group of women from the Tiwi Islands, which is just north of here, and were featured in Top End Wedding. The listeners sort of watched that. Uh, and it's this group of women from there, and they sing traditional songs, uh, and they you know, show us their dances. And it's really led by a group of female elders, who love it and love the limelight and were really playing up to a pretty big crowd and it was just joyful, absolutely joyful. There was four Willy Walkers on stage, there was a couple of breaks for asthma puffers, just wonderful. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, um, for those uh, listeners who don't know who you are, I might just give you a brief introduction if that's all right. So Amy is the current antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist for the Top End Health Service in Darwin. She has previously worked with the Therapeutic Guidelines and as an Infectious Diseases Team Leader at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Her many areas of interest include the treatment of hepatitis C, antimicrobial stewardship, liver disease, and everything infectious diseases. Amy has several publications to her name and has recently embarked on a PhD examining nephrotoxicity of penicillins and vancomycin. Most importantly, Amy is a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan and has previously been described as a real combination of Santiago and Gina Linetti. Amy, welcome to Beyond the Dispensary. How is that? Did I get most of it right? I think, I mean, famously people are terrible at analyzing themselves, but I mean, all I wanted to talk about is the book on that nine part of that introduction. And I could not be both prouder and more convinced that it is absolutely accurate that I embody the spirit of Amy Santiago and Chita Lanelli. Chita Lanelli, honestly. I'm glad, I'm glad my, my research um, came through. That's good. <laughs> Um, all right, so your turn. So um, I, I guess I just want to hear from you a, a, a bit of a brief history of your career so far um, and how you got to be where you are now. Yeah, I, I love talking about this, so this is great. My career has been, I think, a bit atypical. I've essentially been a clinical pharmacist for about 15 years and I've moved really every two to three years on the dot. So I did my internship at Nambour on Sunshine Coast and then I stayed there once I registered for about eight months. And then I got an opportunity to go and live in Vanuatu for a year. So I, when I was 24, I went over to Vanuatu with the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development Program and lived over there for 12 months and uh, learned the language. And uh, pharmacy was very different while I was there. It was really logistics and education, but I absolutely loved it. And because I was quite early in my career, it didn't bother me that it wasn't, you know, super clinical. And then I came back to Australia and uh, had to find a job. So I went out to rural Queensland to Narrabara for six months 
And then I realized sort of big city life was for me. So then I moved to Canberra for three years and really finished off my sort of um, rotational clinical pharmacy training, I think. Uh, and it was at the end of my time in Canberra, I'd been working in the ICU for about 12 months when the Opportunity Therapeutic Guidelines came up. And they were looking for an editor to take over the antibiotic guideline. And I'd been developing a strong interest in antibiotics from being in the ICU. And one of the intensivists said to me, if you want that job, fly to Melbourne, fly to Melbourne for the day, prove to them that you're serious. And so I did what I think is still probably the most baller thing I've ever done, which is like get on a plane with just your wallet. Because <laughs> I was just going to and from Melbourne for like four hours or something. And went to the yeah, guidelines. Yeah, I felt so like, who even am I? It's just... I uh, went to Therapeutic Guidelines, interviewed for that job and yeah, was successful and then yeah, moved to Melbourne, worked for Therapeutic Guidelines for a couple of years. And I think working at Therapeutic Guidelines was the uh, was a big big changing point in my career. And what was what I felt was happening was every time I was working on a guideline, I was just learning so much that I was actually sort of becoming a bit tormented that I wasn't able to use all this knowledge I was learning. So I did uh, two guidelines with them full time and then that's when I just absolutely felt that I had to get back to clinical practice really to use all this stuff that I was learning and I the guidelines that I did were antibiotic and gastrointestinal and within gastrointestinal I was in charge of the liver topics. So that's essentially now been my focus ongoing. Uh, and so then I moved to the Royal Brisbane and uh, did a couple of jobs there, did DUE, did infectious diseases and AMS, which I just loved. And then, yeah, moved to Darwin to do AMS in Darwin. And then after about 12 months of that, uh, I got an email from a reg saying, oh, there's two guys looking for a PhD student on combination nephrotoxicity with penicillin and vancomycin, and they're looking for a doctor, but I actually think a pharmacist would be a better place. And so I emailed them and said, you don't want a doctor, you want a pharmacist. And they said, yeah, probably do want a pharmacist, actually. <laughs> and so then I started my PhD. Uh, I, I knew a lot of that. I did not know you, you'd gone to Vanuatu and done that. That's, in, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, and obviously your connections with the therapeutic guidelines um, have uh, stayed current. I know you recently did a, a webinar with them on an updating um, the liver therapeutic guidelines. Is that right? Yeah, the, the Therapeutic Guidelines Collaboration has sort of stayed with me. I've even worked for them freelance since I like left them full-time. It's, it's just such a um, useful, I think, organisation that are really looking to expand, you know, from just having the guidelines into making them usable in practice and doing things like webinars and education sessions. And I really agree. I just, the processes that they use there, you know, you don't see them, but like the things that they do to make sure their guidelines are quality, uh, excellent. So like when you finish writing a guideline when you're the editor, you do an editing process. But then quite separately to editing, you do a proofread where two of you, you and a senior editor, sit in a room and read every word of the guideline out loud and you fix one person listens and one person reads. And it can take up to a week and you just sit in a room and read it out and you find so many you know, little little issues and things and it's you know you just you never do that when you write a guideline for the hospital you sort of just write it you get it approved and you put it up 
but and sitting in that room and reading every word, he's just like, oh, God, how did that sentence fit in there? Like, it's a really good process. I think that really shows because, you know, I think a lot of people would agree. It's just, it's such a easy to follow and intuitive uh, resource. It's, it's really easy to find the information you want. And, and I, I particularly, like, I always try and instill in, like, interns that I have with me or, or maybe younger pharmacists, not to, not to skip over those sort of earlier sections on backgrounds on the topic. There's such, like, pearls of wisdom in there. And it really sets the scene for, um, for why uh, the TGs makes the recommendations it does. Um, so if there's any younger listeners on here, I would, I would encourage you to not uh, skip those first few sections. I'm sure you would agree, Amy. Yeah, you need a sound effect for like when a critical pearl is happening, like a siren or something. Like yes. <laughs> that would be a siren, uh, siren note. Yeah, I definitely agree. I see people scrolling down because TG has the uh, recommendations in that box. People scroll. They make it too to easy. Box. I think they make it too yeah. easy. And then you know the, the the paragraph before says, you know, the recommendations below say this, but just in this one specific case you should be thinking about, you might not want to do that. And I'm like, ah, I didn't even read that. So now you're in Darwin and um, tell us about that. What's it, what's it like living up there? Yeah, Darwin has been uh, a fascinating change actually. The Northern Territory itself is just so unique. Like I work in the top end, uh, which is really, I guess, I don't know how far down we go, but essentially it's a huge area and there are four hospitals. And, you know, there's um, us at the Royal Darwin and then there's Catherine Gove and Palmerston, which is a small rehab hospital. And we work quite closely together. But just it just covers this huge area of uh, really unique patients and diverse backgrounds. And it's it's been completely different. So I think uh, the way I always think about it is at the Royal Brisbane, I never really uh, – what this I don't want to sound insensitive, but – you wouldn't have to have your cultural awareness at the front of your mind with every patient. So you could often walk into a patient's room and have no language barrier, no huge cultural difference, uh, and they might have been from far away because certainly the world is like we do have some issues with people coming from far away and then you know, problems of discharge getting them back home. But I think at the Royal Brisbane, the, at the Royal Darwin, the big difference has been with every patient, there's there's often like you know cultural diversity, and how you manage that to make sure you're still giving absolute, you know, evidence based medicine, but patient centric, and still doing a really good job of pharmacist counselling, uh, which because I do think if that's a lot easier when you just walk into a patient's room and start talking, and when the dynamic is that you know you have the floor and you know, the, the most important thing to that patient is, is normally their healthcare. But the patients we see up here, they have a million things going on for a myriad of reasons. And the most important thing to them at that moment might not be hearing what you want to tell them about their meds. And I think that's fine, but we haven't necessarily got a process for them capturing them at a later date or having a, 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 a safe place for them to still get that information. I find it very stimulating and rewarding working up here, but I do think there's a bit of a, a mismatch between pharmacy services. It's probably still being too much of a, you know, sort of model that comes from other places. I think we do need actually 
somehow to have way more services in communities, which is where people feel safe, uh, as opposed to really having all of our services in the big hospitals. Yeah, that's that's interesting insight. Do you think that it's it's that sort of didactic model of um, counselling a patient in hospital just just doesn't work up there? Do you think it's it's better if there was some sort of like post discharge follow up when it was in a, a nicer environment and where they weren't being talked to by seven other clinicians? Do you think a model like that could be more successful? Yeah, definitely. And I reckon we see it. We've got a, a amazing pharmacy staff out at Gove. And there's, there's two pharmacists out there. And I've been out there just once to do an audit. And people are much closer to their homelands when they're there. And the vibe is completely different. And I, I see that and I think, yeah, something's working here. Something about having people, um, you know, they're still in hospital, but it's, it's, it's a, they have family around and, you know, and like um, the pharmacists out there often counsel outside. Uh, it's, it works a lot better. It's, I, I completely think you're right. We need to be thinking about innovative ways to maybe capture people after discharge. I think when people in hospital, and particularly at the Royal Darwin, they're pretty on edge, but uh, once they leave, they're a lot more open to it and whether there was some sort of clinic-based pharmacy, remote pharmacy services, I think could really work. Yeah, which I think makes sense almost um, almost for any patient. I think there's even yeah. a, a bit of a focus at the moment. I, I still work at the, at the Royal Brisbane, as you know, Amy, and um, I think there's a, a push to sort of try and do some more post-discharge um, counselling over the phone. Um, I think there's some early data to show that retention of, of that sort of information is much better when they're not being told on the day um, with all the other things that are going on. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so you're obviously still working in the antimicrobial uh, space, is that right, Amy? Living and breathing it. Maybe can you just, I guess, give us an idea about an average day or, or an average week uh, in your role, and if you can just nut down exactly what antimicrobial stewardship is for maybe listeners who haven't uh, come across this before. I think, to be honest, we haven't done a great job of defining the. We've done a great job of defining antimicrobial stewardship because certainly you know the Australian Commission safety and quality healthcare do that. But what antimicrobial stewardship looks like in practice is so diverse. When I really take a step back and think what what I would want as a patient or a hospital executive of an antimicrobial stewardship service, I would want it to be essentially a monitoring and evaluation service of antimicrobial usage, which doesn't really have any of that clinical stuff in it that we do. But I think at the really high level, what it should be is how many antibiotics are we using? Do we think it's reasonable? And if it's not reasonable, where are we going wrong? And the reason to do that is to reduce antimicrobial resistance. And we think if we can reduce exposure, we can reduce resistance. So that's what I think it is. I think it's essentially a a monitoring and evaluation service. But one of the key things that we do with that is essentially prescribing feedback. And so once you start doing that, you become a bit more of a clinical, the, the lines become a bit blurred between whether you're a clinical infectious diseases pharmacist or you know, some sort of clinical stewardship pharmacist. At its core, I think it really is about just optimising the use of uh, antimicrobials. There's a couple of ways I want to go there. Um, and and the, first, the first is obviously our, um, so our aim is that we are trying to reduce uh, antimicrobial resistance. And I know that um, a few years ago I, I spoke with you and, and we were talking about how, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's sort of the one thing that we have control over, but it's probably the, the thing that makes 
potentially the, the the least difference when you when you look at other factors like um, antimicrobial use in in third worlds and mm -hmm. um, poor sanitation around the world. Um, how do you, how do you sort of balance that and and maybe you can just expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I completely agree. I I do think that what we're really doing in hospitals is a tiny fraction of the problem. Even just to think that we don't really undertake antimicrobial stewardship in the community, so we don't really monitor and evaluate uh, GP usage. Um, that's one thing. I think the second point that I would make in touching on your point is probably the most significant. So global antimicrobial resistance, as we as COVID-19 has pulled into focus, is real and it spreads. And overuse of antimicrobials in other countries, but then particularly that leading to contamination through uh, poor water supplies, that is making a huge difference. Then we also have agriculture feeding in. And even a meta-analysis came out you know, two weeks ago and looked at restriction programs and did it reduce antimicrobial resistance in certain pathogens. And it it really didn't seem to. I think some of that is probably because we've been restricting antimicrobial use you know, for a while and so we've maybe potentially even plateaued um, what we're doing there. The only two groups that showed a benefit was reduction in um, PIPTAS and that was driven by a single study that showed a lot of reduction in resistance. The others didn't. And reduction of fluoroquinolone use seemed to have a benefit. But again, in hospital, I don't actually spend a lot of time uh, we don't have stacks of inappropriate fluoroquinolone use, I would say. The vast majority of fluoroquinolones that we use are necessary. So I I wonder whether this model needs to change. And essentially what you need to do is a degree in antimicrobial stewardship and then you either do healthcare antimicrobial stewardship or maybe you do developing countries antimicrobial stewardship or you do agricultural antimicrobial stewardship because what we're actually doing is we're pharmacists and, or doctors or nurses and then we're taking that background and applying it to, you know, antimicrobial stewardship program. But I don't know that the bang for the buck would be antimicrobial stewardships in tertiary hospitals in Australia. I actually think if somebody sat down and looked at whether it would be better to do it in community, whether it would be better to have antimicrobial stewardship in veterinary practices in Australia, and even whether it was better to have antimicrobial stewardship that just worked on the social determinants of health in pockets of you know extreme poverty within Australia, I reckon all of those would potentially show more health economic benefit than antimicrobial stewardship in tertiary hospitals in Australia, which is really all we do. <laughs> so, where does that lead us? Do you think it's um does that mean we should just uh, shut up shop and, and and stop worrying about it in hospital? Well, I think if it's all we do, we have to keep doing it because it's essentially better than nothing. But I think. It's probably time to uh, put the thinking caps on. There are a couple of people who are really driving this. So there's NCAS in Melbourne, the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship. They are definitely pushing the boundaries in terms of aged care practices, GP practices, and vets. And I think potentially as they get more funding, we might see some diversity like expand. The thing, the reason that I get, uh, the reason that I think I've got the ideas that I do is I realise that I wouldn't actually be all that good at fixing the bigger antimicrobial stewardship problems uh, with water and sanitation and the contaminants of health. 
And the reason that I wouldn't be very good at those is that actually I'm a pharmacist. And that's why I think entering public stewardship should really be a bigger degree or qualification that means that you can specialise in certain areas and, and take take your expertise elsewhere. Because the other thing that sort of made this crystallise in my mind is people ask me questions about things thinking I'm an antimicrobial stewardship expert, which people would say that I am, but I really just am in the context of the pharmacist. And people were starting to ask me questions at conferences and things about, you know, water and sanitation. And I was like, uh, you know, refer to Bill Gates' documentary. Like, I actually don't really <laughs> know anything about that. Yeah, that's that's an important distinction. Yeah, exactly. I don't actually know how to fix those problems, but I am interested in fixing those problems. I just don't actually have the background for it. It's obviously not all audits and um, and pure antimicrobial stewardship. You're also a, a clinician and an infectious diseases pharmacist. Um, so before I interrupt you, you were going to tell us about what an average day or an average week is like oh, yeah. for you. Um, I've completely for forgotten it. that. Yeah, great. So an average week for me is actually fairly structured. And I would say that I don't think you're allowed to say you're busy unless you're organized because it's really easy to be busy if you're disorganized. I am very organized I always have a to-do list at the start of every week and I also have everything in my calendar so that I can click on it at the start of the week and check what I've got check that I'm prepared and then push things in although the PhD has really helped with that gives you a bit, a bit more time to have brain space for that but so essentially for me a traditional week at the moment uh, Monday and Tuesday are my PhD days uh, for the start of the week and on Monday I catch up with my supervisors in the afternoon for my PhD, I have four supervisors, three of which are infectious diseases physicians and one is uh, Superstar Jason Roberts. And those meetings are fantastic. I usually have four different points of view on a single question uh, that I get to synthesize into an answer. But we we don't just talk about my PhD. We often talk about like pertinent clinical articles that have come out in the last two weeks. And I find those really stimulating and enjoyable and we book them for an hour and they often go for an hour and a half or up to two hours. And then Tuesday, uh, I start the day off, we have a long-term antimicrobials meeting. So as part of the hospital, we go through patients who are on long-term antimicrobials. Then I have two teleconferences. So I'm on a, a clinical trial called SNAP and they've got domains looking at different parts of that trial and SNAP's a staph aureus bacteremia trial trying to work out what's the best drug do you need to add clindamycin? Can you step down to oral antibiotics early? And I'm a member of the early antimicrobial group and the clinical pharmacology group. So that's a group of international experts who have essentially spent the last six months debating doses of drugs that should be used in a trial so that dose optimization can never be a, a reason for failure, which I think is an excellent way to run a clinical trial. And I think this model should be used for other drugs. And then we've also been debating uh, when you can switch to oral and when you switch to oral, what doses to use. So on that group, I have colleagues from America, Canada, uh, Israel, Singapore, New Zealand and Australia. So they've been uh, fascinating experiences. Then Wednesday, I work at the hospital. Normally, I try and do at least one education session. So either nursing staff, pharmacy or external. And we also do a remote antimicrobial round. So each Wednesday we dial into either Catherine or Gove and they alternate. 
and go through every patient at the hospital on antimicrobials with a medical consultant, with the whole medical team, but definitely including the consultant and the pharmacist. And I must say they've improved. Well, they were quite good to begin with, and now we find it hard to find something to intervene on, but we're always looking. Uh, <laughs> and then Thursday I go back to my PhD. I'm trying to think what meetings I have on Thursday. Thursday's pretty – oh, Thursday morning we have journal club. And then I think it's just PhD all day. And then Friday is another PhD day. Uh, we have ID teaching in the morning and then uh, PhD. But I would say in general, a couple of years ago, I started thinking about my work life as essentially just being all the time. And I just need to manage, you know, how much sort of extra you do, but doing extra that's going to benefit you and being adaptable to work at any time. Uh, which I've taken really as the glory of being more and more senior. Uh, but, yeah, it definitely has changed a lot to essentially just being thinking of every day as do I need to do anything <laughs> and how much am I going to do? Yeah, I suppose that's that's sort of what you sign up for when you're, you're doing um, advanced research, like a PhD. Um, that's, a, that's such a diverse week. You've really got, you've really got all the... the um, pillars of, of practice there. You've got you know, research involvement and um, clinical practice and teaching. That's, that's fantastic. You've got such a broad range of roles. Um, I'm surprised. Um, it, so it sounds like you're actually uh, only doing a, a little bit of clinical practice. Yeah. I, so I technically only work Wednesdays. So that's the really interesting thing about doing a PhD. Um, I assume it's the same everywhere, but to get the scholarship, I had to only work, you have to do your PhD full-time, which is four days a week. So it's a bit of a tricky situation because I think if I could design my ideal week, I'd probably work more than one day at the hospital because the one day does make it hard because you're sort of just starting from scratch uh, each time. But, to yeah, to get the scholarship, you need to prove you're only doing at least four days in your PhD. So you're sort of a little bit hamstrung there. Yeah, fair enough. How, how do you feel like uh, antimicrobial stewardship's different um, where you are compared to a more metropolitan area like um, like the Royal? Yeah, uh, it's, it's sort of similar in that the activities you do are the same, but the Royal Darwin is really interesting. So I guess I'm technically TES, but I do the majority of my day-to-day work at the Royal Darwin. And sorry, TES is top-end health service, but... I did the majority of my work at Royal Darwin. And one, we use a lot of antibiotics. So Royal Brisbane was like one of the, I think it's in the, the second least user of antibiotics in the country, very low antibiotic usage. And Royal Darwin would probably be the opposite. We're sort of sit somewhere between 50 and 70% of our inpatients are on antibiotics. And, I mean, they have some of the best infections going around. We had a stingray uh, cellulitis last week we've had so many shark and croc bites like you know, out of control uh, but it's it's a hospital with a real infectious diseases focus which makes even though there's a high volume people are just so engaged so we have you know we, on the infectious diseases consultant staff we have like the global expert in neurodosis we have the global expert in malaria and I think we have the global expert in TB as well. And so the fact that those, well, there's sort of four of them in those three roles, 
uh, we, the fact that we have those people and that they're giving education sessions and mentoring juniors means that the, the medical staff really enjoy infectious diseases, you know, management and are happy to hear advice. So it's it's a lot more work in terms of when you're doing an AMS round. You know, the has been uh, we used to, had a bit of a record for seeing like 11 patients in an hour with um, some of the doctors that were pretty speedy. But I get a list up here and it's got about 300 people on it. <laughs> like, just there's a lot more antimicrobial usage, but there's a it's a real focus of everyone's work, and so there's a lot more integration. So since we've started there, uh, they have a surgical acute care team who, as you can imagine, I was just talking to like seven times a day because every acute surgical patient comes in under this uh, SARCO team and then after they've been in for a couple of days, they go out to a gen search team. But all the antimicrobial plans are being developed under this one team. And so after a couple of months of that, I was like, this is a little ridiculous. Like I'm just paging you guys all day or you're paging me all day. So we set up twice weekly regular meetings where I would, on a Monday and Thursday, meet with the team and go through every patient antibiotics, but also just come up with plans and sometimes they would bring questions. And, you know, key to success, the consultant was always there. So there was none of this, oh, the consultant wants it. Yeah, decisions could be made. Yeah, decisions could be made. And I could really hold the interns to it. I could be like, yeah, we discussed this with the boss and that was was the plan. Uh, So... The, the ability to, that people were interested in that idea, I think, is really reflective of Darwin's interest in infectious diseases. Yeah, it's great that there's obviously such a passion for antimicrobial uh, stewardship across across all the staff. That's that's awesome. Um, yeah. What, what what do you think drew you to infectious diseases? <laughs> do you know, I haven't really got a good answer for this. I um, <laughs> And if I can be so bold as to say my main priority was having patients that didn't need discharge meds. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, I'm, I mean, I'm mostly joking when I say that, but it's. I think you can only do hardcore clinical ward work for so long before you potentially need a break. And... Antimicrobial stewardship was good for me uh, because I had the experience from therapeutic guidelines in the antibiotic guideline, which I just felt like had solidified my own learnings amazingly. And then I really did like that work model. I liked the idea of being in charge of a program. I liked the idea of being in charge of my day. Like That's the other thing when you're a clinical pharmacist. You're such a slave to your pager and... You sort of, I mean, hopefully it's changing, but you're not always the most considered part of the process. Uh, and I really liked the idea of you know, being in charge of my day. I would you know, put together the patients. I would work out when we were going to do a round. You know. I mean, that, you're always still dependent on when the doctor's free, of course, but just have a little bit more control. And it did sort of suit my expertise. I think if there was a similar job for liver pharmacists, I would have definitely um, potentially gone down that path. But, you know, antimicrobial stewardship is this amazing opportunity really for pharmacists to be at a high level and to run a program. And so it just, you know, married up perfectly for me. Yeah, I think autonomy goes a long way for sort of job satisfaction, doesn't it? It's nice yeah. to be able to, to find a niche like that. 
Um, and now I guess um, maybe that makes sense why why you've done a PhD, but that was my, my next question, I suppose. And I suppose that's just another way to get more autonomy. But but tell us why. Why on earth would you do a PhD? You know, I've been thinking about a PhD for a long time, but I didn't really uh, know what it meant, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people who are listening will think similarly. So I wanted one because I wanted I, – I sit at conferences and I just look at other people who are presenting and I think, God, I'd just love to have that intrinsic knowledge on a subject that makes you comfortable with nuance, you know, makes you comfortable with um, monitoring and just that you can, you know, really embed yourself within something. I really liked that idea and I, I felt like a lot of people who had that had PhDs. And I also have always enjoyed clinical research. I enjoy journal clubs. I love reading. Like I just think data does drive my practice. I, I love knowing, you know, just back descriptive statistics. I even just love knowing those, let alone you know, evidence-based medicine in terms of benefit and risk and so on. And using evidence in practice is wonderful. It helps, you know, helps you make changes. It helps you convince people to do what you want not even do what you want do what's right really and I did feel like you know someone said to me you don't do a PhD to become an expert you do a PhD to learn how to do research and I was like right well that's what I need to do I need to learn how to do research because that's what I want from my career I want to be clinical in some aspects so that I'm always applying my knowledge because when I wasn't doing that I found it really difficult and I wasn't getting the reward that I got when I was applying my knowledge. But I also want to be driving the research and I want to be doing that from a pharmacy perspective because I look at pharmacists in the States, particularly infectious diseases pharmacists in the States, are phenomenal. And they are driving pharmacy research, like drug dosing, toxicity, therapeutic drug monitoring, research that's you know that I'm implementing and I think you know there's there's still a huge gap within Australia for us to be doing that as well and you know that's what I see myself in the future what I would love is some sort of hybrid where I'm working clinically a couple of days a week and then you know creating and implementing research a couple of days a week and that to me would be a, a very ideal career situation good answer it's nice to have pharmacy champions like yourself there seems to be something about infectious diseases i feel that um really attracts people with that sort of attitude um and i don't know if it's unique to infectious diseases but i've just i guess i've met a lot of sort of mentors or, or champions of pharmacy practice who have that attitude and um, it always seems to be channeled through infectious diseases mm. um i don't know why maybe maybe it's just something satisfying to pharmacist brains about a you know a, a bug and a drug and a patient and it's just it's all very satisfying there's there's kind of correct answers some most of the time do you know i completely agree with you sometimes i think um do you know what i love about acute infectious diseases is that it is acute and like <laughs> malaria is the perfect example you come in you only have to treat them for three days uh, they have essentially zero sequelae it's the ultimate clean uh, medicine I think so that's a, um, to sort of go back to your bigger point it's really interesting and I can't believe I've never really thought about this 
I wonder if it's because the jobs in infectious diseases, like, you know, sort of such as AMS, although just whether that allows you to think about this more, because those expert-level jobs without clinical loads, which is where you can't get sucked up, are less frequent in other areas. I don't know that that's true, actually, because there are lots of expert-level pharmacists outside infectious diseases. But, yeah, I agree with you. There is definitely preponderance of pharmacists in infectious diseases who have this mindset. And, yeah, I think that's really interesting. The other thing I would say that's maybe a little bit of a side topic is probably, like, as I said, I've been a pharmacist almost 15 years, so I finished pharmacy in 2006. And what really worried me was career progression. I did start to think, Oh, where does this all end up? And if if you're you know interested in management and uh, you know there's obviously opportunities for assistant directors and directors, but I I again I absolutely feel this need to be at least some portion of my job at a clinical expert level. And I really started to think, right, well, what does that look like? And I didn't really want to be an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist for the next 40 years. That's not, I didn't see that as a valid uh, career path for me. And so then I started thinking, well, how am I going to develop my own, you know, career path here? And I definitely was, you know, obviously inspired by Jason Roberts and thinking, well, he's managed to combine, you know, research and clinical pharmacy and so then I sort of set about doing things that I thought would put me in a similar position. You know, yeah, career path for pharmacists, I think, uh, is another area that the profession has to probably step up a bit on and create jobs like that. So create jobs that have um, expert pharmacists who also a couple of days a week potentially do research or, you know, university education or whatever it is so that we have opportunities once you've reached you know, a senior pharmacist level, you know, how do we keep people in that position but also create a career that they're interested in and get properly remunerated for, you know, over time? I can definitely relate to that. And I think um, it's uh, probably a well-known um, issue with the profession potentially. Um, you know, we sort of don't have that sort of very clear uh, structured um, almost road to follow like some of our medical colleagues do in terms of becoming a more senior clinician and, and being... Um, uh, upskilling in, in clinical practice. You know, I think there's slowly being some inroads made there, but, but yeah. you're right. I think we've got a, a long way to go when you, especially when you compare it to um, pharmacists in the United States and, and, and parts of um, the UK, especially. Yeah. It, I think as well, like you're right, we should probably just, you know, pay homage to the recent changes like residency and advanced practice. That That's definitely heading in the right direction. Well, it's probably a good segue. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about your opinion on what makes a good pharmacist clinician. Um, uh, so I'm interested. You've obviously been a, a pharmacist clinician for quite a, a decent amount of time now. So what do you, what do you think? What makes a good pharmacist um, clinician and, and how can we influence prescribing? That's such a good question. Um, I really wish I had an you know, articulate, coherent answer as I wish I had for all of your questions. But I think... You know, what makes a good pharmacist clinician? I think you've got to be curious and invested, uh, definitely. But I I think what makes a really good pharmacist clinician is communication. And 
that's communicating with the patient, communicating with the nursing staff and communicating with the doctors. So I think probably that's the most important part. But I do think you have to be curious. You have to be prepared to do nitty-gritty work. So, like, if I was to see, like, if I'm looking at junior staff coming through and someone's gone to the effort of chasing up a vaccination history or if somebody's gone to the effort of chasing up, you know, a um, we have a lot of rheumatic heart disease here and so people are on 28-day uh, penicillin injections. And if someone's gone to the effort of finding out when the last one was, that sort of stuff, it makes a big difference. And I think all of it is about finding where you add value and consistently doing that. And you have to do that by you know, communicating with people. But you also have to be remembering, you know, where do I add value here? I can add value with a detailed medication history, then linking that to why the patient's here, what the patient wants and what the doctors need, and, you know, then sort of tying that all together with plans and monitoring. So I would say if you asked pharmacists, this is actually a study I would love to do if uh, anyone wants to help me put this together, like asking pharmacists what do you think your role is, like, you know, what, what in, would have to be a really diverse sample. And then asking doctors what they think pharmacists' jobs is. And then asking nurses what they think pharmacists' jobs are. And I just think you would have three very different focus. And I think, you know, I, I love drug interactions. I just, you know, it's just fascinating how you know, drugs interact with each other and how it can be important. And I really think doctors think that every single patient we see, we're doing a drug interaction check on. And, yes. you know, we know that we're not and that would be a pretty both pointless and huge time commitment. But when we need to, we are. But then, you know, again, as a profession, we haven't necessarily said exactly who needs a drug interaction check on. So it's not, it's just so unclear that I think to be a really good pharmacist clinician, you've got to know where can I add value here and You've got to, you know, be able to do the tedious work. And then I think my biggest thing is turning a good pickup into a change. Like that's, I actually think pharmacists, the training is very good. Like the degree is very good. And most people who can get through the degree are you know, competent. I don't actually think I've ever met anyone who I thought couldn't do it. The only thing I've found is uh, you know, either people being too busy or just, you know, burning out and lacking that curiosity and ability to do tedious work. But also you've really got to turn a pickup into a change and that can be difficult. And it can mean the biggest barrier can just be getting someone on the phone. But again, it, it really is about being tenacious and and making sure that what what you found matters. It's it's not just good for you that you found it. it there's a patient at the end of all of this. And it matters to them that you've implemented the change that you think is important. I think that rings rings true for me. You know, um, so often I, I think that my my job is so much easier when I'm sort of three, four, or five months into a rotation, just because you you have that rapport there, you know people. There's this implicit trust, and suddenly picking up things and then getting the changes is just is just so much easier. 
Um, and you're right. I think that, you know, your, your job is, is 5% done if you've picked up the error and, and nothing else is, is done about it, obviously. Um, yeah. So yes, communication, I, I would absolutely agree. It kind of brings me back to what I was thinking about when you were talking about whether it's appropriate to counsel patients on discharge at the point of hospital or whether it, it's more effective to outside hospital. Because I think it's often the the simple things that, that actually have the most impact. I think we all focus on things like complex drug interactions and all these things, which are super important. But at the end of the day, if, you know, if, if patients aren't um, adhering to therapy or not understanding therapy, then if you can fix those things, that's probably just a much bigger win than even some of the more sort of nuanced clinical practice things. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really good answer. Yeah, I could not agree more. I was listening to one of the Curbsiders episodes. It was an old one. and um, Yeah, it's a good podcast. Oh, amazing podcast. Uh, and Joel Toff, Kidney Boy, was saying he just wants his juniors to be getting the basics right, but getting the basics right every time. So he was like, you know, it's really easy to be focused on uh, the high-level stuff that you think that will impress people, but actually your consultants, and certainly I feel this way, are more impressed when every single patient is either on VTE prophylaxis or has a reason for not being on VTE prophylaxis. Like if we're getting that right every time, then the platform for picking up the bigger stuff is left potentially to consultants or expert pharmacists and everyone's doing their role and it, it comes together in, you know, optimal patient care. This, um, one of my favourite quotes about teamwork, because, you know, as pharmacists, teamwork, we're either working in a team on the ward, a team within pharmacy, you know, there's a bunch of teams going on. And Craig Bellamy, who's the coach of the Melbourne Storm, who I absolutely adore, uh, he, um, he always says about teamwork, know your job, do your job. That's it. If people don't know their job, they can't do their job. And if people don't do their job, then they're doing someone else's job and the team falls apart. And I just think that know your job, do your job mentality. Sometimes I don't think we're all that clear with our juniors on what we really want their job to be because we give education sessions on the nuance, on the interesting, difficult things. And so are we feeding messages like this is what we want you to do, but sort of Actually, what we want junior pharmacists to do is, you know, has this patient got adequate pain relief? Is Should this patient be on VT prophylaxis? Why have these regular beds been changed, you know? Uh, and then if, yeah, if you're missing the bigger stuff, it, it, it will be caught by someone else potentially. But, yeah, as, as I get more senior, I think what I really want uh, from the clinical pharmacist is to get the basics right every time. Like consistency is really important. I think it's a good point too, you know, if we're not sort of outlining clearly what our role is, you know, I think like you said before, when there's, when there's maybe confusion about what our role is between other professionals, between nurses and doctors, you know, we have to make sure that we know exactly what our role is so that we can um, at least have a good starting point. I think that'd be a really fascinating piece of research. Maybe you can tie it into your, your PhD somehow. I'd love a survey on um, what the expectations of pharmacists from different health professionals and from pharmacists and see if there's how much sort of mismatch there is. That'd be really fascinating. Yeah. You can imagine it would be quite a lot. I think that would really actually help us because we could potentially see what other people want, but also... Yeah, what their expectations are. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you about how you stay up to date with practice. Um, I, I think it, it sounds like you obviously dedicate a lot of time to making sure you can um, stay up to date with literature and, and really engage with those sort of things. 
you're obviously a big fan of podcasts. You mentioned the Curbsiders podcast. Uh, any advice for maybe more junior pharmacists with sort of um, staying up to date or um, engaging with, with clinical research? Yeah, like it's so hard now, I think. There's so much research coming out all the time. Like I do a couple of things. I get um, table of contents emailed to my email. So I get like a couple of big journals, Ned Gem Lancet, and then a couple of like JAMA. Just so I'm seeing, like I, I very rarely actually get to read any of those, but I'm at least seeing, you know, what's coming out each month. I think I obviously listen better when people are talking and it does mean that you can, you know, do it on your commute or going for a walk. So podcasts would have been a big revelation for me and, you know, the medical ones I listen to, obviously, Curbsiders and there's another fantastic one from the US, uh, no, actually, I think it's Canadian, uh, EM Cases. And they really help. And also you can listen to... Um, New England Journal of Medicine summaries and, you know, IDSA give you a summary when new guidelines come out and then there's the infectious diseases of America. Uh, Pharmacist group also do them. Podcasts have really made it a lot easier for me to stay state, I would say. But I am a big, also a big fan of, um, at, you know, attending conferences. I think, that, you know, in a two or three day conference, you can pick up a lot and the questions that you hear other people asking and, and that sort of stuff is really important. And so not seeing that necessarily as a, a burden or – I mean, I don't think many people do, but I think conference is really important. And, uh, yeah, attending education with, with big education sessions, particularly, again, sort of if you are junior, my approach was always just to try and take away three key points and then try and use them in the following week because it's too much often to take everything away or try and implement everything straight away. But at least trying to focus on it, I'm going to try and get three things out of this. And, you know, that can really help it seem a bit less daunting. Yep, good advice. Is there any particular podcast you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, so I do quite like Purple Pen Pods. Uh, I, you know, they're a good one. So if you're a budding AMS infectious diseases pharmacist, you have to subscribe to Breakpoints, which is the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists of America um, podcast, and they are phenomenal. They're led by pharmacists, but they're high-level research. They just did one the other day talking about oral penicillins as step-down therapy, but they've got a lot of fascinating insights. But I do also listen to a lot of non-medical podcasts, if you're interested in hearing my favourite non-medical podcast for the moment. Um, so I've been listening to this podcast. It's really hit and miss. I've recommended it to a few people. One person loved it and stopped listening to anything else but this. And then, like, three other people were like, that's the worst thing I've listened to in my whole life. But I love it. It's called Off Menu. And it's comedians from the UK. It's James Acaster and Ed Gamble. And they interview other UK comedians and like food critics and chefs and you have to come up with your dream meal so it's your dream entree main dessert side and drink and just as a starting point listen to Louis Theroux because I thought he would be super serious like he takes on his fascinating topics he was silly plus 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 he, at one point he puts on a Swedish accent it's it's glorious it's really glorious 
That's great. All right, I'm going to put that in the show notes. That sounds that sounds like my alley. I like that. Um, we're probably drawing to the end of the podcast. Um, I, I suppose that the idea for this podcast was really to sort of um, be a bit of a uh, platform for maybe early career pharmacists or even students to sort of hear about what professionals in the pharmacy space are doing. Do you, do you have any advice for either pharmacy students or early career pharmacists? My advice would be to always sort of take your own career in your own hands and really just know that this is going to sound grim, but work will never really look out for you. You have to look out for you and you have to take opportunities. Uh, I'm a big advocate for taking opportunities. If you think you can do it, apply for jobs, set yourself up for success, but you have to be prepared to do hard work. It's been a lot of hard work when I look back I've spent a lot of weekends working. I've done a lot of presentations to try and make sure uh, I've got the skills in that area. It, it takes a, takes time, but you will get there. And don't ever be disheartened by a bad day or a bad week. It, it's there actually the times when you're making the greatest changes and sort of have in your mind, you, you sort of need to know what success looks like. Uh, so you can get there if you don't yet that's fine just do things that you enjoy try and learn as much as you can and eventually something will will speak to you and and then you can sort of follow that path but know what success looks like and just know you are going to have to work hard to get there but those times of greatest learning are when you feel most uncomfortable like I'm seven months into my PhD now and I spent about the first five months feeling pretty low and I mean not not super low, but when you've come from a job that you understand completely and then go to a job that you don't really understand at all, you're, you feel just like, what am I doing? Why doesn't this make any sense to me? Am I actually quite dumb? Is that what's happened? But I think someone said to me, it's just when you're undergoing periods of great change, you do you feel uncomfortable. And so trying to just have the insight to know that a bad day or a bad week is actually probably your greatest opportunity uh, and, you know, just take the time to reflect and think about, okay, that went badly, how can I do it better? That moment, priceless. That's going to make you a million times better and more confident and you've just got to see them for the gift they are as opposed to the terror they feel. I think I need another clinical cur- uh, clinical pearl sound effect there. That's that's really good. <laughs> the siren. Pew, 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 Thanks so much for coming on and talking with me. Uh, I really appreciate your time, Amy. A pleasure. Um, yeah, I loved it. I feel like, um, do you, if you, just can I quickly throw it back onto you, Sam? Have you sure. received any really good advice or is there something that keeps you, like what what put you on to making this podcast, which I think is a, just a fantastic idea? Good question. Um, I... I think I just I, I wanted to um, make it a little bit more transparent that there were sort of these more non-traditional roles out there, um, and I've I've met so many good good mentors, um, predominantly through the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, um, yourself included, obviously, and um, I just I don't know whether that's always um, clear for other early career pharmacists or students that there are these sort of roles and 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 
how sort of wide pharmacy practice can be and um, areas of impact uh, that you can have that you might not have thought of initially. Um, so I think that that's the reason why, why I started the podcast. In terms of advice, I, I, I think for me, um, the best advice, and I've sort of touched on it in the, in the podcast already, is when I think about the most effective pharmacists that I've worked with, they've always been the people that can build really successful relationships. And they're people who, um, you know, go the extra mile to uh, build, build those relationships and build that confidence and then, you know, do everything they can to sort of maintain that over the years. And I think if nothing else, that, that's, that's been the thing that sort of rung true for me, just sort of making sure I'm, I'm building these relationships um, with pharmacists and doctors and nurses uh, because nothing happens in a silo and um, all our work is, is sort of useless unless you have the other people around you to sort of carry it forth and do the next steps. Um, so I guess that's, that, would be, that would be my advice, you know, um, make, make sure that you're uh, being sort of the, the, the best person you can be and, and really look forward to building good relationships with people. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> that's probably a good place to stop. Thanks so much, Amy. A pleasure. Thanks, Sam. That's all for this episode. I really enjoyed chatting with Amy and I hope you guys got something out of it too. If you have any questions or suggestions for the show, you can contact me via email, which I've included in the show notes. Stay tuned for more episodes in the next few weeks.